get more into the details of what it means to be a sustainable company. It's one that doesn't see this as a corporate social responsibility exercise off to the side where you give a little money to charity, but it's actually embedded in your core business strategy, right? Your business strategy incorporates what are the material, most important environmental social issues in your sector and in your industry. It incorporates um, engagement with key stakeholders from nonprofit organizations to suppliers to employees around what they think are important environmental and social issues for your company. Um, And then it means that you've set inside of your company key performance indicators that will help you drive, let's say, um, more energy efficiency or more diversity and equity in your company, right? Those types of things. Welcome, everybody. I'm Mark Peter Davis, Managing Partner of Interplay. I'm on a mission to help entrepreneurs advance society, and this podcast is part of that effort. Today, I have a conversation with Tansi Whalen over at the Center for Business Sustainability at NYU Stern. She takes us through what I think is a pretty unusual way to think about sustainability. Very interestingly, she connects the financial sustainability of an initiative to the social and environmental sustainability. She believes companies should make more money for having more impact. She also runs through the flaws of the broader ESG framework and suggests a bunch of ways to improve it. Now, before she jumped over to NYU and built uh, this department, she ran an initiative called the Rainforest Alliance, a multinational nonprofit designed to conserve rainforests. We dive into what's happening in the rainforest side of the world and how to tackle those issues as well. It's a great conversation. I think it's worthwhile for all tiers of management to hear. Enjoy. This episode is brought to you by Chelsea Capital. Chelsea Capital provides high quality, low cost accounting, tax, CFO, and alternative finance solutions. For those who don't know, alternative finance solutions include venture debt and other forms of non-dilutive capital. They help companies scale their operations while keeping costs low. If you're interested in learning more, visit chelsea.capital. Tansi, thanks for being here. That's a pleasure. All right, let's jump in. I, I think it's important in this particular conversation to start a little bit with your background. Would you mind giving us just a quick overview of what you're doing now? And then we'll rewind a little bit to how you got here. Oh, sure. No, I'd be glad to. So again, so much fun to be talking to you today. And uh, about my background, I'm currently running the Center for Sustainable Business at NYU Stern School of Business. I launched the center about six and a half years ago. And the center's focus is on helping current and future business leaders to really embed sustainability core to their business strategy to drive better societal impact, but also better financial performance and competitive advantage. And so we do that through working with our students. So we have programs, undergrads, graduates, executives. I do a lot of executive training. And then we also do a lot of research and thought leadership. But on the research side, we're looking at things like, how do you actually understand and monetize the business case for sustainability? Um, What can we learn about um, consumer purchasing of sustainably marketed products? We've done some really unique research there. Um, We've also done research into private equity and Um, the good, bad, and ugly around how private equity can drive better uh, societal performance and financial performance or not, right? So a whole series of really interesting research initiatives that basically aim to um, help business 
help society, but also help themselves and improve their performance. I, I love the way you marry these two things together because I think it's contrary to the common perception. Usually when we hear social impact or ESG or any of these other catchphrases, they're delivered in the assumption or context for the recipient of cost. And you sing a tune about how it is financially desirable, which I love. Mm -hmm. So we're going to dive all into that. Um, you have a non-traditional career trajectory. Uh, you know, you did a lot of social entrepreneurialism along the way. Can you share a little of your journey and how you got here and kind of what you learned from it? Yeah, it's it's been fun, Mark. I've been really lucky in the things I've been able to do. Um, let's see, prior to coming to Stern, I ran Rainforest Alliance for 15 years. Rainforest Alliance um, is an organization that uses market-based solutions to drive both sustainable livelihoods and biodiversity conservation. And the organization works in 60 countries around the world with 5 million small producers, 5,000 companies to um, transform production of tea, coffee, forest products, and things like that to make it more sustainable, both from a livelihoods perspective and a biodiversity perspective. And um, I came to that job having worked in Latin America um, as a journalist on environment and development issues and came back to the States um, and took the Rainforest Alliance job when it was just a $4 million organization that nobody really knew. And then I built it into a $50 million organization working in 60 countries around the world with, as I mentioned, sort of um, thousands of companies. And um, also with about, um, let's say, 20% of the world's tea, 14% of the world's cocoa. So really mainstreaming sustainability. Um, and in that work, I learned a lot about how do you how companies can drive better performance, how everybody in the value chain can drive better performance through more sustainable practices. And we can talk a bit about that, but that's fascinating. You know, I got to go to everywhere around the world, you know, the Amazon, obviously, and working on sustainable forest management or sustainable tourism, but, you know, to West Africa, looking at cocoa and Kenya, looking at tea and, you know, just, just um, very, very fascinating um, set of experiences. Um, and then prior to that, I, um, uh, worked on a couple of different organizations, building them out. I built the Brooklyn Bridge Park Conservancy. So for those who live in New York, we um, were going to have a horrible, nasty development down um, in between the Manhattan and Brooklyn bridges along the waterfront. And so I was able to organize people to stop that and put in place a whole plan around building out a park, um, which we have now along Brooklyn Bridge um, Park, which is just wonderful. And Prior to that, I ran the New York, I built actually the organization New York League of Conservation Voters to help um, get politicians, Republicans or Democrats, but those that are pro-environment elected. Um, we had Larry Rockefeller and Bobby Kennedy on the board, for example, back then, and then, you know, sort of bipartisan. And then we, um, I also built a federation of state leagues of conservation voters all around the country. Um, so it's been, you know, doing a lot of work like that, really building organizations that are going to have a positive impact um, on um, on our on our current um, status, but also in our future, you know, and finding that win-win. That's what I like is sort of finding the way to bring stakeholders together to to create better opportunities for everyone. Yeah, that is the novel twist, I think, and everything I keep hearing from you is, is really finding an alignment. Uh, just before we jump into that, you talked about the Rainforest Alliance. That sounds like a huge job. What was the motivation for you to jump from that to heading over to Stern to run the program you run now? 
Yeah, so um, so Rainforest Alliance, it was a huge job. And as I said, you know, working in 60 countries, I was traveling 60% of the time, running this big organization. I also believe that you need turnover running organizations and it had been 15 years. Um, so, you, you know, I, I thought maybe it was time and I was looking around for what I wanted to do next. And I was looking at, do I want a chief sustainability officer job? Do I want to work for a foundation? Do I want to go to another NGO? And I actually had gone to NYU undergrad and I had um, taught as a guest lecturer at Stern when I was running Rainforest Alliance. And right when I, just serendipitously, when I was thinking about what I wanted to do next, the head of that program at Stern asked me if I'd like to come teach. And so I thought about it. I came back to him and I said, actually, a lot of what I do is teaching. <laughs> you know, you're, you're persuading people to engage, but I'm an entrepreneur and I can't just teach. So um, how about I build a center for sustainable business for you? We'll put it in place because they had nothing. We'll put in place these programs, the research. I said, I'll go raise the money. Um, and I showed them what their competitors were doing and that nine out of the top 10 business schools had sustainability programs and Stern did not. Uh, and then I got a million dollars from Citibank to get it started. And so they said, yes. <laughs> right. You made it easy. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. Uh, so what is sustainable business? Just to baseline this, um, how would you define that? Yeah. So sustainable business is business that um, looks to harmonize positive environmental impacts, positive societal impacts, and profitability, right? You can't be a, a sustainable company if you're not profitable. But also, I believe you cannot also be a sustainable company if you don't take care of your people, take care of the people that are affected by your products, take care of the environment. And in fact, it makes good business sense to do so. Um, I would also say that, you know, if we get more into the details of what it means to be a sustainable company, it's one that doesn't see this as a corporate social responsibility exercise off to the side where you give a little money to charity, but it's actually embedded in your core business strategy, right? Your business strategy incorporates what are the material, most important environmental social issues in your sector and in your industry. It incorporates um, engagement with key stakeholders from nonprofit organizations to suppliers to employees around what they think are important environmental and social issues for your company. Um, and then it means that you've set inside of your company key performance indicators that will help you drive, let's say, um, more energy efficiency or more diversity and equity in your company, right? Those types of things. What are the misconceptions about this? Because this, is, this has become a pretty, there's a lot of strong opinions. It's been politicized and everything else. Yeah. What, what can we take out of the conversation before we get started? Yeah. Um, I think um, it's unfortunate it's been politicized because Basically, if you look at, um, for example, the state of Texas, wh who is opposed sort of ESG investments, right? And you look at what, if you, when you go into the state of Texas, there's a huge sign everywhere on every uh, street that says, don't mess with Texas. And it has an enormous fee for throwing your litter out the window, right? When you go to Texas, there are uh, health regulations in terms of working conditions. There are uh, environmental regulations in terms of um, ensuring that there isn't negative impact of oil and gas extraction on people living near the site, right? So this is stuff that is just done anyway, right? And so when you're looking at um, 
uh, sustainability. It's about ensuring that you don't have negative impacts on people, which anybody should think you would want to do, right? That's what regulation does. Only this is a way to do it through market-based forces, which in theory, conservatives should like. <laughs> um, and secondly, um, it enables companies to not only manage for risks, right? Environmental and social risks, but also look for the upsides, look for the business opportunities. So I'll go back to Texas, huge generator of, of, of wind, renewables, right? Huge opportunity right there. Um, I can't imagine that the government of Texas would say to businesses, you can't be building renewable energy facilities, right? Because it's good business. So what we want to see around sustainable business is the recognition that it basically is good management. Um, what we're seeing is that Sustainability is driving innovation. It's driving operational efficiency. It's driving employee engagement and retention. It's driving supplier resiliency. It's driving sales and marketing. All sort of um, elements of good management. And um, I can, let's see, give you an example. Um, uh, automotive companies. We did research with a variety of companies looking at the business case, looking at how they had um, driven better financial performance. And for example, through their waste management strategies, they were doing things like recycling, recycling paint and solvent. And when you recycle paint and solvent, you no longer buy the virgin stuff. You no longer pay the waste disposal costs. And actually, they had some leftover recycled product that they were selling. So they were saving money and they were um, had a small revenue uh, source. Another example is a pulp and paper company in the southeast of the United States. Water is free in the United States. So when they were looking at, you know, should they reduce their water, uh, the company mill manager said, no, why should we? We don't pay for it. So then they, the sustainability folks did a study. And what they found is all that free water, which where they were using an enormous amount of it because it was free. <laughs> they used an enormous amount of energy to move it around, to heat and cool it. And then they had an enormous wastewater to dispose of. So all of that free water was costing them $1.5 million per mill per year. Right. But they never thought about it as what it effect is, which is an operational inefficiency. Right. And so in both of the examples, um, you know, companies performance is improved by um, actually looking more closely at these issues that we tend to just think of as compliance, but actually create opportunities. Right. And I can talk about a variety of other areas, too, other examples. I want to talk about one. Uh, here's a question for you. You know, when we think of sustainability and the, the nemesis of that, we think big oil. How can a company like Exxon be thinking about sustainability as an opportunity, mm -hmm. right? If you're, you're really taking a different lens the way you present the alignment of this. I'm trying to understand, are there limitations where like, hey, in these particular scenarios, like, hey, the, the water actually has a cost associated with it, stop wasting, and it becomes a good case study. Or are there, and uh, the question is, and are there also scenarios where there is no incentive or market force to drive a sustainable behavior, and we just need government regulation to deal with negative externalities? Well, I think so, we always need some government regula regulation. Absolutely. I mean, if you, you look at um, when you have companies that are making steps forward on sustainability, undertaking these types of innovations, they still need, for example, 
on the positive side, incentives for all the research and investment, like what we saw early on with solar, don't necessarily need that now, but we did early on, right? So the incentive side is important. On the other side of things, on the um, sort of regulatory enforcement, we need that as well, because otherwise you have bottom feeders who really undercut those companies that are doing a good job and make, you know, offer, like if we look at um, during the uh, Charles Taylor's war in Liberia, where he was killing people, um, you know, to keep in power, he um, funded that war and his guns through cutting down all the forests in Liberia. Um, that wood was then sold into the international market with nobody really paying any attention to where it came from, even though it was illegal, obviously, because it was cheap, right? And there was no enforcement of it. So that meant that com that um, companies that were sourcing sustainably and responsibly were undercut, right? So you want enforcement of those kinds of things. But um, that said, I actually do believe that market forces can drive a lot of positive behavior. So let me go to your oil and gas question. Um, right. So what, what do you do if you run a company <laughs> that is supposedly the antithesis of sustainability? Right. So how can you be sustainable within that mission? Yeah. So, I mean, I do think that oil and gas companies need to begin um, from the understanding that their businesses are going to sunset. In the same way that, you know, Kodak sunsetted. I mean, we have throughout history different technologies that sunset, and this oil and gas is going to sunset. Um, it's going to take a while to get there, and we can't go from zero to 100 overnight, and we need these companies to figure out their role in that, that, that transition. So how do we go about it? Well, one, which they were just forced to do, bringing in people on their board and their leadership who actually have experience in carbon transition, in renewables, in new technologies who can help them think through what those options are. So that strategic engagement, which has had been lacking and um, I think is still lacking at Exxon, but, um, you know, uh, is going to be an important piece. Um, secondly, looking at their existing capabilities and how they can be brought to um, a new, new sectors, right? Because they have a lot of expertise that you could use, for example, carbon capture technology, right? So how can they take what they already have and think about repurposing it to solve for some of these challenges? Like how, what do we do with all these emissions? And carbon capture is a really interesting place for companies to go. Um, another would be to, you know, stop thinking of themselves as an oil gas company, even not even many are calling themselves energy companies, but actually start thinking about themselves as a you know, sort of low carbon future company. And what is, and, and if you think about that, you're thinking sort of 10 years, 15 years into the future, where do you want to go? And sort of what should your mix be over that period of time? And how do you begin to develop those other sources of all, um, energy? Um, there's a, Shell has um, entered into a a joint venture with Cozan out of Brazil to create Raizen, R-A-Z-E-N, which means the roots, I think, um, which is working with sugarcane, ethanol, solar, and a variety of other um, energies to create kind of a one-stop shop for customers around energy solutions that are low carbon. And on the ethanol front, they're develop sort of second generation ethanol that's more renewable and focused. So you need that kind of innovation. Again, that's a small bit for Shell right now, but um, it's an interesting place to explore. Yeah. So I think there's, there's lots of opportunity. For companies like this is, I guess it's a little bit not the appropriate question for someone 
in, in the crosshairs of a massive technological revolution, right? Like a, an energy company. Um, but it is for, for the rest of us kind of in normal industries or other industries, and it's no normal. Is sustainable sustainability kind of a nice to have or a must have? How should people be thinking about this conversation we're having as they're kind of opening up their own curiosity for their own industries? Yeah, I think companies have seen it as a nice to have rather than a must have. But I think that I, I've seen that change and it's changing for a number of reasons. The first is that um, a number of risks are becoming very material. Like if we look at climate risk and you're a business in property and casualty or in food and agriculture um, or in many industries and you're not understanding that climate risk, that impact of extreme weather you are probably going to be um, really challenged financially. I mean, if you like, um, do you, if you like coffee, like most of us, second most traded commodity in the world after oil, climate change is dramatically affecting the productivity of the beans, even to the extent of like the altitude that they grow in, the top quality greens go in are going higher and higher. And you only have so many tops of mountains where you can grow coffee, right? So if you're in coffee and you're not planning for that risk and figuring out how you're going to manage it, you're going to have real challenges. So there's that risk side that is becoming increasingly apparent to, to business. I, of course, like the opportunity side more because I like, I, because of the entrepreneurial side of things, I want to see like where I can go with it, right? So on the opportunity side, there's um, the employee engagement retention piece, right? There's a war for talent right now. We see Generation Z and uh, millennials really care about this. They are um, choosing companies that have a purpose, right? So if you want to compete, that's another big element. And actually, if you're a bad actor, as we've seen, you're likely to see social media tweets and a bunch of stuff coming from your employees about how they're unhappy with you, right? So that's, that's, another, that's another area. Um, another benefit for business, as I mentioned, the operational efficiency side, I mean, Companies think about waste as compliance, but actually it's the ultimate operational inefficiency and they need to shift their mind, their thinking about that. Um, there's also um, the uh, sort of innovation play, right? Um, so we're seeing a lot of new products and services being developed with sustainability as a driver. I'll, I'll give you an example because it shifts how you think about things. It's like a design um, question. Uh, this is a prototype. I'll give you. I'll give you a bunch of real examples too. But I love this prototype example. Goodyear engineers created a tire. Okay, this tire is three D printed, so only printed on demand. It is printed out of recycled rubber, right? So reuse. It's hard, so it lasts longer rather than being inflatable. It has moss embedded outside the hubcap. That moss takes in carbon dioxide and emits oxygen. So it sort of contributes to reduction of climate change. It also, um, when the road is wet, when, the, when it's raining, the moss makes the tire stickier on the road so it improves safety. And then finally, the um, uh, hubcap has a little uh, AI element that um, talks to an autonomous vehicle when you have one. Now, it's a prototype. Uh, I don't know that we'll have anything that complex, but it's fascinating. This is like a freaking tire, right? And they're thinking right. about how to solve for all these different issues within the tire, right? Um, and there's so many things. Ikea has a curtain that um, – this is not – this is real – that um, that uh, is an air purifier, right? 
Nike, their Flyknit technology has reduced waste by 80%, while at the same time, it's a higher performing shoe because it's lighter. It's made out of one strand of recycled polymer rather than stamping it out and creating all this waste, right? And all of those come through like different design criteria, right? When you, when you bring together sustainability, but like with Nike, just as an example, um, I talked to Hannah Jones, this former CSO, and she showed me the first prototype, like ugly, hideous, heavy, sustainable shoe they made because they only included the environment as a criteria. But then when they started to look at it with design, like we want a higher performing shoe and we want to reduce waste, then they came up with this really innovative like product that is now a category disruptor. I mean, everybody's using it. I love these examples because these are not examples of companies just trying to do good when management happens to care. These are attempts to create products that will be more marketable because consumers care and that have more improved efficiency or better applications. Exactly. And so they're real, to your point, alignment of economic incentives and market forces to drive a better, for a better earth. Um, I love that. You know, what I think about this, I think about how these applications we're talking about are generally R&D for large companies. Uh, Interplay, our team, we're living at the frontier of innovation, the very beginning of idea inception. Companies that we're funding are, you know, 10, 20, 30 employees. We're starting new companies. We're coaching companies that, you know, are three to five employees, typically in extreme cases, one or two. So we're living at the beginning stages. Do you see the sustainability thinking applying to certain stages? Is this more of a conversation for hedge funds looking at public markets or the LBO folks who are dealing with private companies that are more mature typically? Or does it also apply to early stage or anything in between? I think it applies at all stages. It's just going to differ, right? I, I think um, we're seeing more and more startups and more accelerators and more venture funds focused on companies that are developing solutions for some of these environmental and social challenges. Um, I'll give you an example of one of my uh, Stern alum, a young, uh, his family came of immigrants. Um, they had hard, you know, real challenges accessing credit because they had no credit history. So he's developed a company called Asusu that's done very well, but, you know, it's like a startup um, that works with um, rental information and landlords to plug that information into credit bureaus so that if you pay your rent on time, which obviously your landlords want you to do, so they have an incentive to participate, then you can build that credit history and it's going really well and he's got great investment in it, you know, but it comes out of this kind of social purpose is where he's focused. And there's others, uh, another startup that I've, got to know called Water Plan, um, has developed tools for companies to manage water risk in their supply chains, right? So there's just, I think there's all kinds of opportunities for smaller companies who are set up to, to solve for some of the challenges that the bigger companies aren't the, they're not the innovators. They need to buy that stuff in, right? Right. Is there a stage where you typically see um, a stronger penetration or adoption of this mindset? Well, and so there's two there's two types of mindsets, right? One is this embedding sustainability in my core business strategy. I would say I see that more at the big multinational level than I and I think small and medium-sized companies are beginning to get there and obviously some had it. You know, you have some family-owned companies or some just like 
you know, companies like Patagonia, like Patagonia that have had that kind of ethos forever. Um, but still, I would say the, the, you see it more typically in the large multinationals. Um, but then you have more of your social entrepreneurs and those tend to be the smaller companies that in some cases are getting bought by the bigger companies. But um, that I see across, you know, small companies often, right? A lot of companies started by founders who really care about whatever particular environmental social issue they're trying to, to manage for. But that's more of a pure play impact as opposed to an integrated kind of sustainability into a broader company. Got it. Got it. Got it. Makes total sense. Okay, so you're out at NYU indoctrinating the next generation of leaders on this mindset, which is really powerful. What are other channels or mechanisms available that are working for getting leaders, management, entrepreneurs, executives to kind of adopt this way of thinking? How do you, how does this go viral? How do we get how do you get the word out? Well, um, one thing that I'm doing is a lot of training for management consulting firms. So actually training thousands of their employees, um, the big, you know, amongst the big four and others. And that for me is exciting because they're force multipliers. They're going out and consulting with the companies on these topics. And when we want them to do a job, be, you know, for me, that's an investment and, you know, that goes much wider than that one particular person. It's all the companies they interact with. So that's one area. Another, um, area that companies can access are, are um, industry associations are increasingly incorporating sustainability and, and sort of creating pre-competitive collaborations around tackling challenges that that industry might have. So um, if you look at um, World Business Council for Sustainable Development, for example, that brings together businesses or the Ethical Tea Partnership or the World Cocoa Foundation, they're all um, industry plus other stakeholders working together to solve for some of the bigger challenges and opportunities for those sectors. So that's another way um, that companies can can get help. Um, I would say um, the board leadership, really important to, ha to uh, recruit and engage board members who have both a commitment to and a background in ESG as well as improving the diversity of the board as, as that's been a conversation, an ongoing conversation. Um, I did some research looking at the Fortune 100 uh, boards, 1,188 board members. Um, only three of them had climate credentials. Only eight of them had cybersecurity credentials. Um, none had worker voice credentials. It was like amazing to me to look at that, you know, in our biggest 100 companies. Um, and one of the challenges with boards is they tend to be people, you know, who used to run companies before these issues were important, right? Um, they uh, tend to have a pretty narrow perspective, not a lot of experience, and therefore don't bring that to the to the board um, strategy conversations. And I think that's a challenge. So I think putting in place a good board engagement around sustainability and strategy, uh, both in terms of their governance and committees and in terms of their credentials, uh, training or bringing on board members would be an important element to um, aligning incentives, right? And, uh, you know, so when I'm looking at companies and trying to decide how really embedded their sustainability strategy is, one of the thing I ask them is, okay, so are you incented to, uh, so you, oh, great, you have these ESG targets. Are you incented to meet them? Nope. <laughs> Right. Uh, right. Okay, then. Well, <laughs> you know, um, or what about capital allocation? 
right? Is, is, um, this is another thing. You've got these great commitments. Um, what about, uh, you know, how do you run your capital allocation process to ensure that you're actually investing in those commitments? This goes very much for oil and gas companies amongst others, right? Um, and actually talking with some companies who have put in place unique uh, capital allocation and IRR analyses to be able to ensure that they invest, like, like Microsoft um, has created that internal price on carbon, uh, right, where they tax their units based on their emissions, and then they take that money and put it into energy efficiency improvements and offset purchasing, right? So there's a lot of ways that you can kind of drive behavior through these types of mechanisms. Did that get at your question? It did. It did. But, you know, the interesting thing about this market is this is when you're talking about it, it seems like such a no brainer. Right. You can make more money, do better for the world, drive innovation in good ways, particularly in large corporations and. You know, educate the next generation of leaders to think this way. OK. There's a backlash, right? There is a. Market ESG has taken on. uh a different meaning to some folks. It's become targeted. What is happening? Why, why is why is there an adverse response to something that seems like a fairly benign, you know, uh, concept? Well, first, I think there's a couple of genuine challenges around ESG that critics are glomming onto, and those challenges are real. So I'll I'll talk about those. And then there's some other issues that are not real, which I'll talk about as well. So on the- right. um, Let's do the real ones. Do the real ones. So the real ones include ESG as a construct is kind of versus sustainability. So let me just start there. Environmental social and governance, right? That was started as basically a way to look at and measure, create metrics around environmental social and governance metrics. It doesn't even include profitability. Right. Sustainability is actually environmental, social governance is in there, though not listed as such, and profitability. So ESG really is about how investors set up kind of a measurement system. And as an acronym, it's not very helpful. And as a measurement system, it's not very helpful even, although it can be. But so here's the challenge with the measurement system. So first of all, companies are are reporting um to ESG metrics that are all over the place. So they vary. They're not audited, right? So there's apples and oranges. Uh, so you can't really tell a lot in terms of performance versus the different companies. Secondly, the standards that exist, the Sustainability Accounting Standards Board, which is now morphing into an international sustainable standards board that's been set up by the IFRS that has the international accounting standard. So that's a good thing. But that um, their metrics are all process-based not performance-based. So an example of that would be in the apparel sector, chemical management is a material ESG issue. Um, the reporting standard asks if you have a chemical management policy, yes or no. That doesn't tell you how well or bad that the company is performing on that topic. And the reason why they can't get at performance is because as a reporting standard, it's so broad, it goes across so many different companies, so many different locations, so many different places in the value chain, they can't get that level of detail. But here's the thing. There is no difference in reporting between that company and a company that's actually developed a bio-based dye that um, has no toxicity, uses less water and energy and creates competitive advantage because you can sell it to a product. They end up the same in the reporting framework, right? So 
that shows you some of the challenges with the type of data being process-based. Another problem is that the rating agencies that collect all this data and then generate it to sell to investment to asset managers, um, they all have different methodologies that are it's their own IP that's black box, right, about how they weight all those data points and also what additional data points they bring in. So then you have wildly different ratings of the same company. So you probably saw Elon Musk have a hissy fit about his <laughs> drop, you know, being dropped from S&P. But if you look at Tesla, actually, five, I have a um, sort of research paper, I didn't do it, but I read it, where like five different rating agencies each gave Tesla completely different ratings. And if you think about it, you could, um, so the social and governance side of Tesla, I think everybody would agree, has some real problems, right? So maybe you're rating, weighting those more than the environmental side. Or maybe you're rating the environmental side, but you're looking not at kind of the promise of these electric vehicles, but you're looking at the actual practice, which is you've got problems with the sourcing of the chemicals and the batteries. You can't recycle the batteries. And most of the energy being currently used by those cars is from non-renewable sources, non-renewable electricity sources. So then you might say, okay, well, the environmental contribution is not that much. But you don't know because all of these rating agencies, they don't tell you how they're coming up with these. So there's a problem there. Um, so I think those, and, th and then, as I said, I think none of this is audited. So companies can just say whatever they want. <laughs> That's the other problem, right? So there, there's a series of challenges here. Um, the other big challenge I would say is that investors and others are asking companies to report on these ESG metrics that, as we mentioned, are process-based. Companies are responding and reporting on these metrics without having in place a sustainability strategy and KPIs that then they report to, right? So they're just running around trying to find some data they can stick in to like report. <laughs> When you say process-based, you're making the point that ESG is saying, hey, do things that are good, as, and we, we'll measure them as much as we can. And sustainability is saying, do things that are sustainable for the earth and the economic viability of the company and getting those aligned. Right. The earth and, and if the they're people. not aligned, it just gets this, this is where this reputation comes of just being a cost center or a distraction right. or even a marketing ploy. Right. To attract exactly. investors. Exactly. Yep. If you were in a position where you could make, wave a magic wand and change things, what would you change to make this work? How would you fix this? I would fix this by um, requiring all companies to assess what are the most material environmental and social issues in their ecosystem listening to stakeholders as well as them, their own internal, external stakeholders and internal stakeholders, mapping those to their business to look both not only risks, but also opportunities over a kind of five-year period, because I know companies have a hard time planning longer than that, <laughs> um, three to five years, um, where, they're, um, where they could uh, manage for those risks and build those opportunities, then put in place um, a set of robust key performance indicators to track how they're performing against that and also put in place 
um, a mechanism for tracking those returns because, um, and we have a methodology called ROSI, Return on Sustainability Investment, that does that. We've been working with a lot of different companies to test that out because it's just insane to me. Companies actually, even those with very robust sustainability strategies, have not put in place the way to track the performance, the financial performance. It's just bizarre. So um, you won't get good decision-making and good scaling and good ability to fight back against these criticisms until you start collecting this data, right? So that to me right. is another You got to know element. that it makes you money. Yeah. Hey, we're doing not, things exactly. that are good for the world and that's making us money. That's exactly. making the company be better economically. Exactly. And not everything will make you money, right? But, you know, like when we looked at automotive, there were 18 different sustainability strategies, 16 of them made the money. So if they, and the rest, well, so what? If you look them all together, they were making money overall, right? So you need to kind of look and understand it holistically. Yeah. Do you think they should still do the other two, even if yes, they don't make money on them? I do. Because they were really, so one of them, was, it depends on how important they are, but one was, for example, sourcing, um, rare earth, like problematic minerals and where you have massive environmental and social challenges if you don't do it correctly. And so, yes, I think it was worth it. And it more than paid for itself with other, um, you know, uh, investments. Okay. This is a big takeaway. Sustainability means improving the financial condition of the company through taking action to have better social and ecological and environmental impact. Yes. Love that. Okay. Hard pivot. You're kind of a rainforest expert. Is that fair? I was. <laughs> but yeah. Let me see what I can. not too far ago, what the right? actual rate of deforestation is right now, I won't know. <laughs> That's okay. You know more, a lot more than all of us. What's going on? We hear that the forest is disappearing and it's bad. Yeah. Can you fill in the gaps on the, the macro narrative here of what's happening? Yeah. So forests, rainforests, but all types of forests. I mean, we're losing forests elsewhere. Why do we care about forests? Um, first, they're a carbon sink. So they're a good offset against our um, carbon dioxide emissions. Um, secondly, they um, provide a cooling effect. I mean, if you ever go under the shade of a tree on a hot day, right, you understand that microclimate impact. And as we have more and more extreme weather and more and more heat, from climate change, those um, forested ecosystems become more and more important um, in, in, like, if you just think about cities, right, urban island, heat islands, lots of concrete, if we green them, right, we'll improve that. So forests can be really important from that perspective. Also, in terms of biodiversity, much of our biodiversity is found in these forests. Um, and uh, that biodiversity is important, even if we don't understand why it's important. It's important often in terms of sort of the ecology and the ecosystem of how things work. But even, even in terms of caring for our own cells, we find a lot of pharmaceuticals, for example, out of rainforests, things that will help our health. Um, so really important to protect that. Um, and then also forests provide livelihoods for millions of people, right? Both indigenous communities who live in those forests and extract um, sustainably forest products, but even in the United States where um, forests uh, provide recreational and tourism opportunities or forest products, again, sort of sustainably um, opportunities. So I think really critical that we all work together to, to protect and um, regrow forests. So what's the solution, right? I, I know we've got a whole bunch of political red tape and 
like very rarely are the things that should be done being done. If you were the queen bee and you could, you know, make a decree, what policy would solve this problem of the deforestation? What do we need so, to be doing? Yeah, so we can look to Costa Rica. Uh, I lived there back in the late 80s, and that was the, the nadir of deforestation, or the opposite, apex of deforestation. It was, you know, they, they had deforested most of the country. And they had laws that encouraged it. Squatters got, if you could prove the land through cutting it down, you got to keep the land. There were a whole series of things. They turned that around dramatically. They did it through a number of different steps. And I think they all make sense, right? One is they created protected areas. But then in those areas that, that were not protected, they actually created incentives for sustainable forest management and sustainable farm management, um, paying, providing ecosystem service payments to farmers and foresters who brought back the forest and protected the forest in a sustainable and responsible way. Um, so, and that those ecosystem service payments came from the utilities, like they run a lot of their powers from hydroelectric and those forests are really necessary to keep the water flowing. So they're able to kind of, in effect, get resources to put into protecting um, those, those forests. They also very purposefully um, looked for industries, light light manufacturing industries that wouldn't have a negative impact on the forests. And then they supported through their own programs, sustainable tourism, sustainable forest management, sustainable agriculture. So they really invested in kind of corporate uh, approaches to corporations that were going to support their vision for sustainable development. Another um, state, just like I, I, we have a house in Vermont and back um, in the 1800s, almost all of Vermont was deforested. Now it's almost all forested, right? And so if you look, it doesn't have quite the diversity that it would have had two, 300 years ago, but it's still amazing. And if you look at what's made that possible, it's been zoning, right? Vermont is very strict about what it allows, what kind of development where. It's also national parks and national forests that you're allowed to do logging, but in sustainable ways. It was really recognizing the opportunity for tourism like Costa Rica of their fall foliage and bringing people there for, for ways in which you can sort of support the economy without extracting the trees, right? So a whole series of, of benefits that you could take. It sounds like the headline, though, is generally government policy to enforce or encourage economically certain behaviors. Yes. And so for those who care about this mission, uh, vote, vote. That sounds yes. like the main thing most of us could be doing. Yes. Uh, thank you so much for being on. Appreciate it's been a pleasure. Yeah, no, it's been fun. And thanks so much for being interested in this topic and for all the work that you do. Appreciate you. Thank you. I really appreciate that conversation with Tansi. I think there is a gap between those who think sustainability is economically unviable and potentially a distraction and those who believe it's critically important regardless of profitability. Tansi's framework brings them together, aligns things economically. Obviously, I don't know if it'll apply in every circumstance and every opportunity, and there will have to continue to be government, government involvement. But it does give me hope that we can spread this perspective on how to think strategically about business and bring more people into this fold. 
If you like what you heard, please hook us up with a like or a five-star review and feel free to share with a friend. You can find me on Twitter at MPD. And to hear more of my conversations with innovators, subscribe on YouTube or any major podcast platform. Just search for innovation with Mark Peter Davis. Thank you.